Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Welcome, everybody, to the seventh episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast. So today we're back on our normal schedule, having Matt back in the office from being out last week. So uh, welcome back, Matt. Thanks, Mark. Um, first off, just wanted to, to mention um, that, you know, our thoughts and prayers are with everyone who were uh, involved in the shootings over this past weekend uh, in Dayton, uh, Ohio, our hometown. And Extremely then, unfortunate. Um, also in <clears throat> El Paso, Texas. So um, just wanted to let everyone know where uh, everyone that was affected in our thoughts and prayers. And, you know, hopefully as uh, a people, we can be better. Absolutely. I mean, this is going to, you know, affect the Dayton community for uh, some time. And the best thing that we can do, Mark, is just, you know, rally around our fellow citizen, do what we can to support others. Um, it's just a tough time, though. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, so definitely, uh a major major thing occurring in our um, community uh, obviously for the worse so um, you know if anyone needs uh, to talk or anything like that our door is always open absolutely so starting off with uh, the performance uh, metrics for the month which isn't going to be too much data um, just because we just started the month of August um, these numbers are as of the close of last night on August 7th um, and again, all this data is from stockcharts.com. So for the month of August, we are down 3.23% uh, on the S&P 500 and up 15.04% for the year. Uh, the Dow Industrials Index down 3.17 for the month and up 12.98 for the year. The NASDAQ Composite Index is down 3.82 for the month and positive 18.5% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 is down 4.62 for the month and up 12.21% for the year. So the continuing theme of small caps underperforming the overall market has continued. Uh, the International International Index, uh, X United States, is down 3.48% for the month and positive 7.17% for the year, um, also continuing its trend of underperformance against the U.S. markets. The three-month Treasury yield currently sitting at 2.02%, the two-year Treasury at 1.59%, and the 10-year Treasury sitting at 1.7%. So we really took a hit over the past week in uh, treasury yields because of the sell-off we had and the fears uh, surrounding, again, the U.S.-China trade and then the Fed. Absolutely. Uh, so moving on, Matt, to the headlines and current events for the week. I know you wanted to talk um, just a little bit about you know Fed and U.S.-China trade and some other things going on. Yeah, Mark, I'll dig in. So you know, in my view, the market's going to be focused on two main themes uh, between now and let's just say the end of August. Now I'll talk about the two themes, but when the market is so focused on one or two things, it's a gift and a curse. Why is that? It kind of turns the market into a little bit of a feast or famine. It's either going to do pretty well here or it's going to do pretty bad. I just think you're in that environment where the market is fixated on just such few things. 
So you alluded to, what are those two things that it's fixated on? It's fixated on the Federal Reserve. Why? Market is anticipating an additional rate cut later this fall with another high probability of a third. And so the next Fed meeting, as you know, is the middle of September, and then it's the end of October, um, and then we have it again in December, right? So the market is going to be fixated on these upcoming Fed meetings. Now, what's the other fire that's burning? U.S.-China trade. So um, how did that get ratcheted up over the past week? So the Trump administration announced that last week they're going to impose an additional 10% levy on an additional $300 billion of Chinese goods, effective September 1st. Okay, September 1st is going to fall on a Sunday, so you're probably going to see some volatility going into the end of the month. That would be my best guess. Now, um, I think the Trump administration has its back up against the wall. They want to show a win before the election, and the Chinese want to wait out Trump's first election, right? So Trump's trying to do the best he can and draw the line in the sand. And what is that doing? It's causing a lot of volatility. Yeah, and then it uh, didn't help that the Chinese responded with that they were going to cease uh, buying uh, U.S. agricultural products, which just uh, kind of made the spiral a little worse uh, last week or over the past week or so. Um, yeah, I mean, because I, I think the rough math is for um, every five things that we import here in the U.S. from China, we export one thing back to them. Rough math. Mm -hmm. But I think that what the Chinese are doing is they're trying to obviously attack Trump's base. Base meaning for the election, right? So what are they doing? They're going to go after the farmers. Yeah. The other thing that they're doing right now is they are... Um, uh, messing with their currency. So what they're doing is they are adjusting, artificially lowering the value of their currency. I don't think we'll get deep into that today, mm -hmm. but they are trying to counteract some of the things that the administration's doing. Yeah. yeah. Now, the other thing I want to share before we move on is this. According to the Sevens report, um, it's a research piece on August 6th, okay? And I'm going to quote, going forward, stabilization in U.S.-China trade is now the most important key to broader markets stabilizing. And he continues and says, if escalation continues, that will cause a further pullback regardless of what the Fed is going to do, Fed being the Federal Reserve. And I say that because another 25 or 50 basis point of easing by the Federal Reserve won't materially offset a protracted and escalating trade war, end quote. So Wayne, what do you make of that, Mark? I mean... Yeah, no, I, I just think that, you know, I think uh, he's on the right track there because if escalation does continue, then it's not going to matter what the Fed does. I mean, eventually this is going to start hurting consumers more more and more, uh, regardless of what the Fed does. And as we talked about before, you know, if we see, you know, year over year decreases in consumer spending in the neighborhood of 10 or 15 percent, then, you know, that's another piece of economic information that tends to happen before we go into the next recession. Yeah, good. Excellent point. Um, so if you don't have any other... No, I just want to kind of communicate or, those two big okay. themes that you're going to see a lot of yeah. over the next couple of weeks. Yeah. So we'll move on to articles and tweets uh, from the week that we found interesting, um, starting off with something Matt uh, saw on CNBC. So one thing I saw, Mark, over the past week is... Um, CNBC uh, got their hands on a survey, and this is the title of the survey. One in five people spend more time planning vacations than finances. <laughs> not Pretty surprised. Yeah, not I mean, surprising. it's fun to plan the vacation, mm -hmm. right? 
It's not exactly fun, especially when you have anxiety about, am I going to have enough to retire the way I want? Or It's not fun having that conversation, yeah. right? Yeah. So I understand psychologically why people kick the can on it and spend more time planning their trip to Florida or mm-hmm. so on and so forth. I just think that I want to kind of drill that home that if you don't have a written financial plan in place that gives you the ability to know each and every year where you need to be to stay on track for a specific goal, I would highly encourage you to seek out a professional. Obviously, it doesn't have to be you and me, Mark. I would just seek someone out. We can do that work. A lot of professionals can do that planning work. I think it alleviates a ton of anxiety and it gets people on the right track. Yeah, and I think from what we've heard from from clients before is it's it's a lot more fun to plan uh, vacations where you don't have to worry about pinching pennies a lot like you do when you're in your early years of working. So keep that in the back of your head too. That if you know do the heavy lifting now, enjoy the dividends later. Yeah, exactly. Okay, exactly. Um, So the next thing that I want to discuss was an article from um, O'Shaughnessy Asset Management, and they were looking at. Um, the impact of performance returns for companies that have a consistent record of um, receiving patents um, for their products. So um, the article was titled, Mispriced Innovation, Patents as a Leading Indicator for Earnings Growth. And again, this is from O'Shaughnessy Asset Management by Daniel Natumo, Philip Krutzman, and Lucas Von Rees. So um, just to kind of lay the the basis for how they did this study um they tracked um what they called a patent universe and this is what they did um so speaking from the article directly to structure this analysis we start with all actively traded public companies within the u.s that are over 200 million in market cap we then take companies that have the at least one granted patent within the last year to create a patent universe Constituents for each universe are determined every month. Financials are excluded from this analysis given the lack of availability of patent data and the lack of historical relevance to the business models. The analysis of the patent universe starts in 1990 with roughly 400 stocks and ends in 2017 with 1,100 stocks. The non-patent universe refers to any companies in U.S. all stocks without a grant in the last year. All relative returns in this paper are presented in excess of the U.S. all stocks universe, excluding financials, which that universe returned an annualized 10.2% over the period of analysis. So from 1990 to 2017. Got it. So overall, the patent universe has outperformed the U.S. all stocks universe by an annualized 2.2% over the analysis period and outperformed by 3.8% over the non-patent universe, assuming a one-year holding period and equal weighting. So patent companies have outperformed non-patent companies on almost all risk-adjusted return metrics and have provided consistent outperformance with a 72.5% one-year base rate. In other words... um, uh, all of the, the full one-year periods between the start and the end date of the analysis, the patent stock portfolio outperformed U.S. all stocks 72% of the time. Hmm. And if you extend that to over the three-year period, uh, they outperform over 83% of the time. 
So it's a pretty significant difference. If you're talking about 2.2% annualized, yeah. so that's over from 1990 to, uh, to 2017, that's a pretty big difference. It is. And, you know, as you were going through this, you know what is going through my mind is one of our investment themes at Justice Wealth Management, which is disruptors, mm-hmm. right? And so it makes me think there's probably going to be a significant correlation between patent uh, grants and a company being a disruptor within their industry. I yeah. bet there's a high correlation, right? Yeah. So to see a little bit of research behind it, I like it. It's kind of interesting. I yeah. love it. Yeah, if people, especially people that want to simplify their portfolios, um, maybe look into this factor, as we like to call it in our industry, of uh, companies consistently obtaining patents uh, throughout their history. Love it. To look for uh, signal to earnings growth and outperformance uh, against the general markets. Nice piece, Mark. Yeah. Um. Small caps, Matt? I know yes. you had a piece on small caps. So there was a, um, a tweet I noticed on August 2nd. It was highlighting the underperformance of small caps since last year. And so from their high on the Russell 2000 small cap index uh, in August of 2018, they are still down low double digits from that high watermark. So I think that... With that being said, you know, the large cap U.S. index, the S&P 500, roughly down about half as much, Mm -hmm. right? So from its high point. So I think that that's just kind of highlighting that I think it's a misperception that, well, all stocks are are near a 52-week high. Not accurate. Not the case. And so I just wanted to highlight that tweet as some justification for that statement. Right. Okay? And, and pretty much small cap companies for the most part are, you know, smaller, um, pretty much U.S. based companies as opposed to like an Apple or an Amazon who's, you know, um, across several different countries. Exactly. So they're not multinationals. Exposure. They're not getting a lot of their sales outside the U.S. Statistically, small caps don't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think part of that maybe is the fact that after uh, Trump got into office and did corporate tax reform, you had a a huge lift on those small cap names because they, I think, disproportionately benefited from a lower corporate taxation rate. Yeah. And maybe it's just a little bit of reversion to the mean. Yeah. Just throwing it out there. Yeah. Not all stocks are created equal. Yeah. Uh, second tweet I want to throw out there is from Bespoke uh, on August 2nd as well. This is the statistic, Mark. 40% of the stocks within the S&P 500 have a dividend yield more than the 30-year treasury. Your thoughts? Wow, um, that's <laughs> that's pretty astounding. Um, and just hearing that for the first time, it's kind of mind-boggling to me that so many people are dumping money into treasuries, and we still haven't seen the inflow back into stocks yet with that statistic. Yeah, and so I mean, the way that I kind of look at this is, it kind of reminds me of when rates started coming down in the early two thousands. That's when you um, had a lot of demand for some of the more blue chip type names. I'm not going to name specific ones. But when you have these yields so attractive compared to bonds, you know, you got to look at a client. And if you have a long term time horizon, I just find it hard to justify locking someone up for 30 years at such a low rate when you might be able to buy a basket of really high blue chip names, get more income. In the anticipation or the justification why one would do it is that the value would appreciate over right, time. The stock exactly. would, right? And obviously, there's the there's the risk to you know the stock price keeps falling and you lose principal. Yeah, or they have to cut the dividend. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely risks on that side. 
just to see 40% though yielding more than the 30 year, that's in our industry, it's kind of a mind-blowing statistic, right? Yeah, it is. And it just goes back to the fact that, you know, it's still a lot of this isn't making sense with the normal thinking of, you know, if you have 40% of these stocks that could get you better income than, you know, the 30-year treasury, you know, why aren't we seeing this inflow back into a lot of these names right now? Yeah. Just tells you the amount of concern, anxiety, pessimism, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the third thing I have to discuss under articles and tweets and research is a New York Times business um, article on August 1st. And um, it said this, a recession is coming eventually. Here are the four indicators that could provide early warning signs, end quote. Okay? So, you know, seeing that, that got me interested. Clickbait. Oh, clickbait. <laughs> I was all over it, right? So, um, before I give you the four things, the thing I want to throw out there is market tops, in my view, looking at history and my almost 20 years experience, they don't happen with articles like this. Right. Right? You know, this stuff tends to be hindsight. Okay? Just want to throw that out there. Mm-hmm. All right. So the four things that they said could be early warning signs, I'm just going to go through them real quick. First, unemployment rate. They said that's the gap between the current unemployment rate and its low point over the previous 12 months. It says, what do you watch for? Rapid increases, even from a low level. In this analysis, quote unquote, all clear. Next thing, the yield curve. What to watch for? Interest rates on the 10-year treasury falling below those on three-month bonds. You highlight this at the beginning of the podcast. This already happened. So, that's a storm warning. Right. Third thing. So, one out of two. One out of two. Third thing, ISM Manufacturing Index. Comes out monthly. What to watch for? The index falling below 45 for an extended period of time. Anything above 50 indicates some sort of expansion. And we're still above 50. So, it checks out. So, one out of three negatives. Okay. Fourth, they highlighted consumer sentiment. What to watch for? Declines of 15% or more over a year. That's also indicating still a positive indicator. Right. So um, of their four um, early warning signs, one of four is triggered. Triggered, right? So again, another data point, stuff that we watch. Um, I still think we could be going through a period of time where there is a difference between the actual health of the economy and what stocks are doing. Why? Upcoming election, the Fed, uh, U.S.-China trade. We talk about these things. Mm -hmm. But when you look at the actual economic indicators, in their example, the four they highlighted, one of four. Just want to throw it out there. Right. And again, it's important to note that a lot of this stuff takes a lot of time to play out. Mm -hmm. So we already had the inversion of the yield curve, which we've talked about in the past several weeks. Um, You know, that's not saying we're going to have a recession recession in the next three months. Um, And, you know, we could even, instead of, yeah, we might not be making new highs, but we might just chop sideways for, you know, six or 12 months. Absolutely. Um, Which, if you pull up a chart of the S&P 500, you can see, you know, not all the time, if we're not making new highs, that doesn't necessarily indicate we're going to drop 20 or 30%. That's right. We just might go nowhere for a period of time. Yeah, and have periods of, you know, dramatic volatility up and down. Mm -hmm. You know, kind of similar to what we've seen tongue-in-cheek the last 
seven, eight trading days-ish? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay. Very much so. So that, that was pretty good because that um, kind of touches on some things we already mentioned in the previous podcast. So I'm glad, glad you brought that up. Thank you. So moving on to the financial planning topic of the week. Um, this comes from a Wall Street Journal, journal excuse me, article uh, titled Three Ways Grandparents Can Help Pay for College. And this was by Cheryl Winnicor Monk. And it talks about uh, college savings. And college savings is an extremely popular topic right now because of how expensive college is, right? Mm -hmm. So this article, I thought, did a good job of explaining um, how grandparents can contribute to their grandchild's higher education. Um, So let's kind of dig right into this. Good. So uh, the first thing that Cheryl talks about is uh, investing in a 529 plan. And I think this is the most common route for most people. Mm -hmm. Um, So Cheryl says that these plans, which invest mainly in mutual funds, offer tax deferred growth on every dollar invested and distributions are tax free when used for qualified educational purposes. Grandparents can pick any state's 529 plan, and some states even offer residents a tax deduction on contributions. These plans are also flexible in that any unused funds can be transferred to another grandchild or a blood relative. So I think this, like I said, it's the most popular option for a lot of people because of the tax-deferred growth and tax-free distributions if it's used on qualified education expenses. Yep. Um, and when we talk about qualified education expenses, that could include tuition, room and board, books, and much more. That's not just tuition. Got right? it. Yep. Um, so that's a very efficient way to save for college. And being able to transfer the account to another family member, I think, is huge because, say, there's a family with three kids. Yep. Child one, you have a 529, you save for him or her to go to college. And they end up not going to college. Yep. They go to a trade school or they just go to work right after high school. Then the parents are like, well, we're stuck here with tax deferred uh, money that if we take it out, we're going to get penalized and taxed on because we're not using it for higher education. Yeah. Well, in the 529's case, no problem. We can transfer this to child two or child three. Rename the Benny. Or another blood relative. Yep. And that could even include if you can transfer it to the, back to the parent if they wanted to go get their master's or go fidget, finish their bachelor's degree. Yeah, we so, see a lot with nurses. They want to go back and right. get their master's and yeah. So it's a good it's a good flexibility to have uh, within a 529 plan. I think that's why it's pretty popular uh, among college saving vehicles. Yep. Um, so continuing on, grandparents can put as much as $15,000 a year or 30000 if they're married per grandchild in a 529 plan without triggering gift tax consequences. Even better, they can bunch five years of annual $15,000 gifts into a 529 in one year without triggering taxable events. Um, so that's 75k in one year that they can front load into a 529, um, you know, and this is an attractive benefit for the grandparents who are potentially trying to reduce the size of their estate. Absolutely. Um, so there's kind of two options to go about it. Either grandparents can own the 529 plans themselves, or they can contribute to a 529 owned by the parent. Um, which is nice flexibility, but there's pros and cons to that that I want to get into really quick, Matt. Good. Um, 
So Cheryl goes on to say that there is, however, a downside to a grandparent-owned 529 plan for families seeking needs-based financial aid. Distributions count as student income on the FAFSA, and student income is weighed much more heavily than parental income in the aid formula. Yep. So this means that students wouldn't get as much financial aid as they would have if the parent owned the 529. Got it. So you got to be pretty careful with that. But there are some workarounds that Cheryl notes. So one of those workarounds is to switch the ownership of the 529 plan to the parent right around the time the grandchild expects to start college. And not every state's 529 plan allows for change in ownership, so you just have to be careful uh, about that before choosing a 529 plan. Yep. So then the other option, which I thought was really interesting, uh, is to wait until after January 1st of the beneficiary's sophomore year in college to take a distribution. So since the FAFSA now only asks for income and tax information from two years back, there'd be no FAFSA on which to report the distribution if the student plans to graduate in four years. Got it. So essentially, if a grandparent owns a 529, they hypothetically could put a plan together with the student or the parent or both to be responsible for the first two years of uh, tuition and then the grandparent could round out and pay for the last two years without negatively affecting the FAFSA. Yes. Um, so the big thing here is that you have to watch because a lot of people, I would say most people, um, get some sort of financial aid when they go to college. Yep. And there's several things that go into that. It's your parents' income, any income that the student is generating. So all of that plays into the calculation of how much money the student is going to get towards tuition and other college expenses. Yeah, and the last time I looked into this, we've had people um, ask in the past, well, hey, can I just um, contribute to a 529, try to get my state's um, tax, tax deduction. deduction, right, and then actually repay my student loan? And it actually doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. So um, to my understanding, and Mark, if you can confirm this, you cannot use a 529 for an actual student loan repayment. Yeah, I don't know of that right now yeah, either. I, so, so we'll double check that for next week, but yeah. I'm, I'm almost po I'm 99% positive that you, you cannot do that. You can't do that, yeah. yeah. So what I'm getting at is it's not like you can then after the fact say, well, you know, the child took out a loan their first year, right, and they mm -hmm. want to pay it back with the 529. Nine, yeah. You won't be able to do it tax-free exactly all right yep no that's a good point um and then the other option that cheryl mentions in this article is that the grandparent could also roll over up to a year's worth of college expenses to a parent's 529 plan after the fafsa has been filed provided that all of the funds are spent on qualified educational expenses it won't have to be reported on next year's fafsa so um the next thing that was kind of interesting that kind of caught my eye was um, when Cheryl mentioned that some grandparents may not want the responsibility of owning the account, which is pretty common, and they prefer to just contribute a certain amount each year to the 529 plan owned by the parent for the child's benefit. So this could be appealing for those who just want to give small amounts of money each year, like $1,000 or a couple hundred dollars each year. Sometimes it doesn't make sense for the grandparent to own it and they can just contribute to the parent's 529 and still get the tax deduction. Yep. So like I said, 529s are extremely flexible and that's the most common 
uh, vehicle again that we see people using um, for saving for college uh, and especially for for grandparents that would like to do that as well so the second thing mentioned in this article is a direct payment to an educational institution so grandparents can also write a tuition check for any amount directly to a qualifying college or graduate school without triggering gift tax implications. Um, so some grandparents like this option because they could pay the university directly and they can still give the grandchild an additional $15,000 tax-free. Great. So this is an example if grandparents or parents haven't started 529s for um, the child or the grandchild, there's still a way to contribute to help them get through college, and that would be a direct payment uh, to, to the school. Got it. Um, so, but there's a catch to this too. So the grandparents can't claim a charitable distribution for tuition they pay on the grandchild's behalf. So also this exemption of the IRS gift tax rule applies only to tuition expenses and not other college-related expenses such as books and supplies like we talked about with the 529 plan. Got it. Um, and then another thing that is interesting is it's pretty common these days for people to transfer schools. So mm. they go to college their freshman year and then they transfer schools or they go for a semester and they transfer schools. But once you make that tuition payment, you can't get that money back. Got it. So there's a chance that if a grandparent contributes, you know, $15,000 directly uh, towards tuition for um, the school, they're not going to get that money back if the student decides to transfer. Um, that's so that's another downfall point. and not flexible option as compared to the 529. Okay. And then the third thing, Matt, that Cheryl listed that I wasn't too high on, so I don't want to get too in-depth into this, is using a fixed indexed universal life insurance policy. So this is kind of the third option, um, but this could get pretty complicated, so I don't want to go into this too much. Um, however, if you wanted to read up on this a little more, you can uh, find this article on the Wall Street Journal. But in my opinion, and you can give yours in a second, Matt, yep. I think insurance, life insurance is used for a purpose, and that's to protect your income stream and protect your children and your spouse if something were to happen to you. Yep. I don't think it's a great investment vehicle. Uh, some people think differently, but I just think there's um, too many other vehicles to save for college than, you know. That are a lot more efficient. Yeah, than using a life insurance policy, which that wasn't even the intended use once, you know, someone or the grandparent purchased that uh, insurance back in the day. Yeah, I mean, I mimic that. I mean, I, I feel the same way you do. I just feel there's a lot more efficient vehicles to utilize that's definitely not on the top of my list yeah yeah for sure so um, again if you want to check that out it's called uh, three ways grandparents can help pay for college um, because you know a lot of the time um, those are the questions we get uh, you know when when people retire we have the first 10 years that they're you know discretionarily spending a bunch of money on you know traveling and you know going to see friends and family in different parts of the country different parts of the world and then the next 10 years, it kind of slows down and they're like, okay, I have some more discretionary income. What can I do to help? Usually uh, when the grandkids, my, grandkids start coming. Yeah, exactly. Right? What can I do to help the kids and uh, the grandkids? And this is one of the best ways to do that. Great point. So um, do you have anything else you wanted to talk about this week, Matt? We didn't have any um, questions from listeners. So 
and take the time to talk about anything else that you wanted to discuss? I mean, nothing else. I mean, I think the market's going to be fixated on those two kind of uh, big topics. I think that, you know, us as a practice, we continue to scour, um, you know, economic indicators, tells by the Fed what they're looking at. We're looking at our individual names, stocks and bonds, but nothing that kind of screams out at me that I think that we should share it. Yeah, yep. yeah. And I know that Matt and I get into, you know, the details every week of what's going on in the past week. But just remember, don't lose sight of um, of where we are right now. The trend's still up. Um, yep. We're still in a bull market. Um, we're just talking about things, you know, that we're looking at that could, pet- could potentially signal a different posture in the market. But again, the um, data points. Yeah, exactly. And but you have to stick to your long term plan um, for this stuff to work. That's right. I mean, just remember, you want to continue to invest for your risk tolerance, your goals and objectives, and don't lose sight of that. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's a good stopping point for this week, Matt. So um, thank you, everybody, for listening to the seventh episode of the Independent Advisors podcast. Uh, Next week, we have a work trip planned down into Kentucky. So Matt and I will be coming to you live from uh, northern Kentucky next week. Love it. uh, We'll see everybody Uh, then uh, for the eighth episode of the Independent Advisors podcast. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. And also check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. Here you'll find links to every episode of The Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words, questions, and topics in the subject line to mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com, and we'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.